Hello and welcome to the History of Voting podcast. I'm Chris Oates, your host of this podcast. It's brought to you by One Nation Every Vote, a nonpartisan group sharing the stories of why our votes are so important and how they matter. You can find out more about the group at onev.vote, that is O-N-E-V dot V-O-T-E. That site has stories about voting throughout history, as well as resources to help you and everyone you know get out to vote on November 6th. Today we're going to be addressing one of the most significant moments in our history. It's the Civil Rights Era. Now, the basic points of this time have been captured and depicted in countless books, TV shows, and movies. From the Montgomery bus boycotts to the March at Selma, it was a time in which grassroots movements, activists, and elected officials worked to overturn systems of segregation and discrimination. It was dramatic, important, and mattered immensely for voting in America. For example, in Mississippi in 1964, only 7% of eligible African-American voters were registered to vote. Throughout the South, practices like literacy tests, poll taxes, and grandfather clauses worked to prevent voters from accessing the ballot. This changed with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. By 1969, 67%, 67% up from 7%, of eligible African-Americans in Mississippi were registered. However, voting in the civil rights era was not just the stories of these two pieces of legislation, as important as they were. And they weren't just the story of President Lyndon Baines Johnson's maneuvering in Congress, as integral as that was. Expanding voting during this time was the product of decades of work by people and groups whose stories are often not told, and by actions across all sections of the country. So to discuss this, I'm joined by Professor Brett Gadsden of Northwestern University. Professor Gadsden, just to begin, what's the standard history of voting rights in this time period for those who aren't as familiar with it? The the standard telling of of voting rights, I think, in the 20th century, I think, is largely told through the lens of African-American history and the civil rights movement. Um, In the early 1960s, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and later the Congress on Racial Equality um, traveled down to the Black Belt, to Louisiana, to Mississippi, and to Georgia, with the intention of really tr- attempting to develop local leadership um, to help empower local communities. And one of their main priorities of these organizations was voter registration. And you know, the or- the the activists would kind of go in, they they move into these communities, they'd live with families in these communities, and speak with them listen to their questions and concerns, and really try to tap in to the well of kind of discontent in these communities and provide them with the tools, I would say, to kind of resist the, the system. Now, the movement had to overcome a number of different barriers. Um, the first was endemic poverty. Many of these people were really, really poor. They were um, sharecroppers and tenant farmers. They were oftentimes very dependent on the local kind of plantation interests and, 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 and really vulnerable to a lot of economic coercion. These voting rights activists also encountered psychological barriers. Many people in these small communities across the Black Belt didn't really see much of an opportunity to really successfully challenge the prevailing system and their disenfranchisement. And the costs were great. African-Americans who made claims their rights to vote as citizens were often met with legal violence and extra legal violence from the police, from local white supremacist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. You know, so there was a lot that these organizations had to confront, big barriers that they had to 
to overcome. What were some of the ways that they tried to overcome that and that they eventually succeeded in overcoming? Well, I think on the ground in places like Mississippi, it was citizenship education, educating uh, local people in their rights and accompanying them to the to local registrars to register to vote. And they they listened to people. They didn't presume to have all the answers for the, for these local communities. But they went into these local communities and they attempted to kind of figure out what these local communities needed, what they wanted, and to channel that energy um, down particular avenues. It's later then that the, the Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee joined with local branches of the NACP to, to form the Council of Federated, Federated Organizations. And they managed, the activist local managed to kind of encourage about 80,000 people to come out and vote for uh, the local NACP leader, Aaron Henry, um, in a vote for governor. In the summer of 1964, COFO oversaw the Mississippi Freedom Summer. And at, at this moment, these local activists who were sensing the great challenges that they faced, the kind of overwhelming power of the state government of of white segregationist backlash, invited 600 students from the North, mostly who were white, to continue and to help with their work uh, to register black voters. And it was this really kind of turning point in the movement, I think, especially when three civil rights workers, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, um, disappeared uh, one evening uh, when they were um, going about meeting with local communities. Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner's murder becomes this really kind of galvanizing, kind of electrifying moment in American political development where the kind of inequalities and inequities of Jim Crow become more, much more public knowledge. And because Goodman and Schwerner in particular were white, they became important symbols of the injustice uh, surrounding voting rights in the Jim Crow South. And then that helped... Um with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to gain passage and then the Voting Rights Act of 1965, I assume that that helped uh, LBJ and Congress pass those pieces of legislation on uh, the back of popular support. Very many African-Americans and African-American activists had been murdered for their civil rights activities in the South in the decades preceding Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner's murder. I think the more proximate event, I think, when thinking about the 1964 Voting Rights Act were the events that happened in, in Selma, Alabama. And at Selma, you're referring to the uh, march at Selma where now Representative John Lewis was at. Yes. I mean, John Lewis is the person who now we kind of most associated with that civil rights and that voting rights action. But activists in Selma, um, through the organization, an organization called the Dallas County Voters League, had long labored to register black voters in the area. In the kind of early 1960s, when they were working, blacks compromised the majority of the population in the area, but they were only 1% of the registered voters. And so at the end of 1964, local activist Amelia Boynton invited Martin Luther King Jr. and the, and the SELC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, to join their efforts to register black voters. And in January, mid-January 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis lead one of the kind of first efforts around 400 applicants 
to the to the local courthouse in Selma to register to vote. And they, they just kind of lead a succession of African-Americans to the courthouse to register to vote, at which point they're consistently turned away by the registers, registrars. By the next month, almost 2,500 people had been arrested. And, and these continued actions at, at the courthouse, repeated attempts to register to vote, and the registrars repeated denials of that of their rights were making front page stories around the country now on february 9th 1965 martin luther king jr and president lyndon johnson met to discuss the situation now i think johnson was a little bit concerned about the kind of op the political optics of this meeting but eventually agreed to to meet with king and during this meeting president johnson expressed support for king's efforts and King subsequently, in a, in a kind of public pronouncement, praised President Johnson for his commitment to universal voting rights. Now, there were continued protests in the area surrounding Selma, and one evening, a local activist named Jimmy Lee Jackson, he was murdered after an attempt to register votes. And it was after that event, after Jimmy Lee Jackson's murder, that King announced this kind of now famous uh, Selma to Montgomery march. On March 7th, a large group of protesters leave Selma on their way to Montgomery. And in what becomes a, a kind of pivotal moment, I would argue, in the civil rights movement, in the kind of long history of voting rights activism in the country, gas masks, Alabama state troopers descend on these uh, on these marchers with you know so, some of them are on horseback with batons and they're firing tear gas at these people and these images were captured on video and later transmitted around the country and uh, around the world John Lewis um, was among 56 protesters who were hospitalized with a variety of different injuries now, I think what really distinguishes this event that later becomes known as Bloody Sunday is that these images were broadcast around the world. And then, you know, a kind of beautiful accident of history, ABC interrupts their showing of judgment at Nuremberg this, that evening to show and to share um, video images of these Alabama State Troopers um, attacking and being these marchers. These images are often seen as kind of the uh, epitome of the fight for the right to vote. And as you said, the precursor to the legislation that was the Voting Rights Act or the Civil Rights Act. But how did we get there? How did we get to that bridge in Selma? I mean, obviously, there was, as you mentioned, action in the years beforehand. But I'm guessing that there was a lot uh, more of a foundation that had to be built in the 10 years or 15 or 20 years before the March on Selma that went into it and, and allowed that to happen. So could you talk a little bit about what was the prehistory of the civil rights era that might not be spoken about, might not be addressed, but was crucial to allowing that to happen? That's a good question. I mean, well, the beginnings and ends of all, you know, of any kind of historical story are arbitrary in a sense. But I think there's a way to tell the story about African-American voting rights beginning in 1944 with the Supreme Court's decision 
in Smith v. Allwright. And here, the Supreme Court outlawed the Democratic Party's practice of prohibiting blacks from voting in the primary elections. And this was a monumental, I think, moment in voting rights in the history, um, because the all-white primary was a really important means um, for white Southerners to exercise their dominance over politics and a means of helping to ensure and solidify and perpetuate the one, a one-party South. Now, after Smith v. Allwright, a number of civil rights groups really do take advantage of this new opportunity, right, of this new kind of political space to launch African-American voter registration drives. The NACP launches a region-wide voter project in which they encourage African-Americans to pay their poll taxes, and they help African-Americans negotiate what are oftentimes very complicated registration and intimidating registration processes. At the same time that the NACP was kind of mobilizing their resources uh, to get um, African-Americans registered to vote, a number of African-American voters leagues kind of sprung up across the region. What distinguished these African-American voting leagues from the work of the NACP was the kind of partisan quality about their politics. And there are a number, I think, that deserve a lot more attention that, that pop up across the state, the Jefferson County uh, Progressive Democratic Council in Birmingham, Alabama, the Georgia Association of Citizens Democratic Clubs, the Progressive Voters League um, in Florida in the 1940s, the South Carolina Progressive De- Democrats. And then there's this voter, the Virginia Voters League. It's there, I think, largely underexplored work um, that I think produces a really significant or begins to to produce a significant transformation in the political culture in the South. This would be during the Eisenhower era uh, and then leading into the 1960 election? Yes, yes. And what's interesting about the voting rights, these voting leagues, I think, is that they're doing two kinds of things, right? First of all, they're trying to register. They're working actively to register black voters in the South, and uh, mainly in cities, too. I don't mean to underestimate the extent to which white segregationists managed to systematically disenfranchise African-Americans across the region. But these voter leagues were kind of instrumental in getting people to, to, to register. That's the first thing. The second thing is, in, again, in the wake of Smith v. Allwright, many of these voters leagues associate themselves with the Democratic Party. And so these African-American voting rights activists are also making claims for inclusion into state and local party apparatuses. They're demanding recognition um, from the Democratic Party of their, you know, interests as kind of party members. And the kind of sum total of their their activist labor produces some pretty significant outcomes. Across the region, tens of thousands of African Americans are registered to vote. We understand the voting rights 1960s campaign in Mississippi and then in Alabama, those are absolutely important. But we have to, I think, remember that these these voter leagues, these African-American voter leagues, registered 80,000 African-Americans in Alabama, 185,000 African-Americans in Florida. In Georgia, 175,000 blacks were registered to vote. Louisiana, 159,000. In North Carolina, 185,000. In South Carolina, 65,000. In Tennessee, 125,000. In Texas, 
225,000, and in Virginia, 100,000. And these African Americans in the late 1950s represent, as a block, swing votes, as Democrats and Republicans are vying for influence, as and, and, and as the 1960 presidential election approaches, as Kennedy and Nixon are campaigning for votes, these blocks of African-American, largely Democratic votes represent margins of victories for each of these candidates. And, and that's something that I have never heard about in the 1960 election. It usually came down to, uh, at least in the, the popular history, it was Kennedy looking better at the televised debates uh, it was the Chicago machine helping put Illinois over the top. Those were the two factors that really helped Kennedy. And so really, once Kennedy then gets uh, into the White House, there is a is there a sense of obligation that he needs to support the groups that helped elect him? Once Kennedy, you know, wins the presidency, many you know members of the black leadership of the kind of civil rights leadership do express their concerns and complaints about Kennedy's kind of slow and belated actions on civil rights. That you know, it really wasn't until um, the summer of 1963. You know, after a succession of these kind of civil rights crises, after a succession of these kind of demonstrations of white Southern obstinance to civil rights advances, after a kind of long record of continued violence about African-Americans, that Kennedy is finally compelled to do what, for many African-Americans, the most prominent kind of African-American leaders want him to do, which is to introduce federal civil rights legislation. And uh, so Kennedy introduces the civil rights legislation. He is then assassinated and LBJ takes over and pushes it through Congress. So that's the the main story that is often told is the Civil Rights Act. Um, and then after LBJ wins re-election, the Voting Rights Act. But it sounds as if really JFK uh, and Linda B. Johnson, they were in some sense, uh, you know, leaders, but in many ways they were following what average voters and and civic groups were pushing them to do and who had pushed them to do it with the help of political victories. I think there's little doubt that presidential leadership uh, mattered enormously, right, in kind of calculating or kind of figuring out or charting the outcomes, right, of these civil rights dramas. But at the same time, I think it's important to think about the importance of grassroots mobilization, because it's difficult to imagine that, you know, Kennedy or Johnson would feel so compelled to move so aggressively or not so aggressively on civil rights, but for very real pressure, right? And that pressure was, I think, coming from a variety of different sources. Okay, so obviously today is not nearly as bad as it was in the early 1960s. It's not nearly as violent for, for one thing, but there are certainly some parallels that uh, voter suppression is an issue uh, and even voter mobilization is an issue. So what are some of the the events or the trends that you could see in the 1950s and 60s that show some light about how our voting uh, apparatus is today and what can be done about it. I think that there has been significant progress since the mid-1960s and that in many ways we're operating in a legacy of, you know, many, many victories, you know, during that period. But that being said, I think that, you know, the problem of voter suppression, you know, continues to kind of echo 
right, across time and space. So, you know, in Jim Crow, in the age of Jim Crow, you know, there were there was poll tax and there were citizen tests, um, there were literacy tests, and there was kind of um, just outright terrorism, right, that white Southerners kind of used these devices to keep African-Americans from the polls. Today, we can, you know, um, we can we we see great evidence of, of the ways in which photo ID laws, uh, the ways in which partisan gerrymandering, poll closures, you know, and voter roll purges, kind of are the kind of new mechanisms of disfranchisement. Um, and so I think that, you know, um, I, I think these these echoes, these recurring echoes, I think, um, I think just remind me about how. In, in many ways, ambivalent um, we are as a nation um, about uh, the principles of kind of universal suffrage. That being said, I think that you know part of my about my part of what motivates me and in, in my interest about this um, African American voter registration activism in the 1940s and 1950s is kind of how persistent it has always been. Right, that in the in the kind of dark times of Jim Crow, they took advantage of this kind of political avenue to register black voters to help to reshape the politics and culture of the region. Throughout these episodes, throughout U.S. history, there's always been a tension about who gets to vote and, and who does vote. But I think as as you've shown, it really, it's not something that is just a, a an abstract force of history. You know, there are people and there are organizations that actually do work that get people to the polls and those concrete decisions, those concrete actions are what make the difference. Um, and I, I think, you know, looking today about our midterms, you know, we're hoping to get people out to vote. Um, but really it does come down to people making the decision to go vote or people making the decision to, to join a group that helps people get out to vote. Just, I mean, today is different from the 1940s and fifties, but that impulse and that need is is constant in a democracy. Exactly. I think, you know, in the 40s and the 50s, the NACP was very active. Different African-American voters leagues were active. But today, there are organizations like Vote Riders and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law that are doing that work. Um, OK, well, that's all the questions we had. Well, thanks, Chris. This was great. This was fun. Well, thank you very much. My thanks to Professor Brett Gadsden for speaking with us on this topic. This is a, an interesting area to cover because on the one hand, it's extraordinarily well known. I mean, the movie Selma depicting the events leading up to the March of Selma uh, from 2014, it won an Oscar and was nominated for Best Picture. It was pretty well known. All the way, a play and then a subsequent HBO movie about the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the election of 1964 won two Tony Awards in 2014 and then was nominated for eight Emmy Awards in 2016. So it's a story that people know about, even if only vaguely. On the other hand, it is a story with crucial elements that nearly everyone, even those who consider themselves expert in American history, don't know about or aren't aware about. It's a story based on the work of people who have been overlooked as TV and movies focus on the dramatic moments, but the foundational building blocks that often weren't glamorous go overlooked. The civil rights era reminds us that making history can be a long and arduous process. It's created by both high-level elected officials and grassroots organizers and strategists. 
Elections can be turning points, but they can also be the foundation for a later turning point. Access to voting can be both the goal and the means by which groups advance their causes. It's important to remember that when we think about whether an election will matter, we may not know the answer for years or decades to come. But probably that answer will be yes, that that election mattered. So if you have stories about an election that mattered or about your vote that mattered in an election, please let us know. 1V is collecting and sharing stories about voting from across the country and across the partisan spectrum. You can read these and contribute your own at 1v.vote, or you can reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are 1V underscore vote. On Facebook, it is One Nation Every Vote. And on Instagram, 1V.vote. And finally, please subscribe to us, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, and be sure to vote on November 6th and register by the deadline in your state. By the time this episode is up, a lot of states will close their registrations, but some are still open. So if yours is still open, make sure to go out and register. The editor for this episode was Spencer Curry. The producer was Riley Doak. My name is Chris Oates. Thanks and see you next week.